0: Good morning. You may be seated. So we are, we're at the very end of our series on Esther. And uh, I have to say there were a couple of weeks, probably late July, early August, when we were planning this series. And I was thinking, boy, eight weeks on Esther, we might actually run out of things to talk about. And uh, now I wish it was going to 12 or 15 weeks, because it's been really rich. I'm very very, very sad to be leaving Esther, and there's probably at least three or four more sermons coming out of this one <laughs> uh, that we could, we could dig down into. Um, if you're new with us, uh, I'll, I'll do a quick catch-up, and you'll be, you'll be all right, and you can start brand new next week with our new series, so uh, I think you'll still get a lot out of it. So author David Kinnaman begins his latest book by telling a story about taking his firstborn, his daughter off to, off to college, a seven-hour trip uh, to, to the school in car. And he says that about three hours in, he started to get a little panicky and worried and feeling like, have I done enough to prepare my daughter? So he started covering all the subjects <laughs> that he could cover. And, you know, what to do in an emergency and how to manage a bank account, and things like. imagine as you're driving, you know, he's, he's just panicking. And one of the subjects that he talked about was how to stay committed to Jesus. And, uh, and he was concerned about that. And, uh, and it wasn't because of his daughter per se, but because of where she was going. And so he explains that he and his wife both went to Christian colleges. And he said, there's something uh, wholesome and encouraging about dropping your kid off at a Christian college. There's gonna be things there to support their faith. He says, almost all of their siblings went to Christian colleges. And that's what he thought his daughter was going to go to. But she wanted to major in, um, what was it, genetic research. (laughs) And uh, most schools that they would have considered didn't carry that, and those that did, it wasn't rigorous enough in her mind. And so she had decided to go to a state school. And he's like, okay. And so um, uh, he said, "That's, that's all right, but it wasn't just any state school. She decided to go to the University of California, Berkeley. And so let's just say, if you don't know, uh, they are kind of on the forefront, from a Christian perspective, they're on the forefront of secularization in our culture. And they're not very friendly towards a Christian worldview uh, on things. But Kinneman uh, wasn't just being a worried father, he said. It was like a professional worry for him because he owns what is the Christian equivalent of the Gallup organization, the Barna Group. And they do extensive research and put out extensive uh, studies. And his previous book to the one where he's telling the story was about the problem that the church has, and it's, it's only a growing problem since he wrote that book, which is the problem of young adults who are dropping out in larger and larger numbers Dropping out of Christianity, becoming de-churched, and walking away from their faith, Uh, and not in the way that a lot of young adults do, but in a very different way, a really, a walking away from their faith. It doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of them won't come back, uh, but a lot of them won't come back, you know, they won't. And so, in that book, he showed through the research that the Barney Group had done extensive research that today's society, said, is especially insidiously faith repellent. That's how he described it. And that resilient faith is tougher to grow today, especially if you're using the old methods of the 20th century. He says, those things aren't working very well anymore, kind of the tools that churches have developed to try to pass on the faith to their churches and parents, to their kids. In other words, the research showed that most Christian parents and churches have not adequately prepared young adults who are being launched to face the faith challenges that they're going to face wherever they go. And uh, that's the whole idea of that book, and it makes that point in a very strong way. So today we're looking at three keys to developing a resilient faith as we finish off our series on Esther. Now, the series has been called Finding Your Way Back to God, so it's been about how do we find our way back to God when we find ourselves drifting, and we all drift. We, like the protagonists in the story, Esther and and Mordecai, we also drift away from God. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, more Um, and become more and more assimilated into the culture in ways that we should not be assimilated. It's not like all assimilation is bad. It's just that when we start buying into ideas and ways of living that are contrary to our faith, that means that's not a good assimilation. Um, So today we're we're looking more, as we finish Esther, what can we do? What should we be about? What should our faith be like? How should we be preparing ourselves so that we can have a resilient faith? Um, not so that we arrive and never have to find our way back to God, that'll never happen, Uh, but so that our faith can be stronger and more resilient. So I want you to open your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 499 uh, in those Bibles and uh if um if you have a smartphone or tablet device we are using the niv the new international version if you're brand new with us hopefully you picked up this green new here brochure on the inside is today's sermon application guide you can always pick it up on one of the kiosks on the way in um and there's uh not only like a place to take notes if that helps you during the sermon there's some reflection questions one of our values here, one of our goals is to help every single one of us bring the story of God to life in our lives. So it needs to become, come to life in our own hearts and minds and then we bring it to, to our lives. So I'm going to pray a prayer based on 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a prayer of illumination, uh, asking the Spirit to teach us and then we'll jump into today's passage. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you've invited us to live a life with you. Through your power and our knowledge of you, we find that you've given us everything that we need. By your Holy Spirit, teach us. Show us more of who you are. Remind us of your promises. Give us faith to believe that you are always working and fill us with the light of your truth as we follow you. Guide us. And shine through us as we bring your light to the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I am going to give a very quick summary of Esther up to this point. There's a lot of drama, a lot of great turns in the story, a lot of surprises in the story. Uh, But just in case you're here for the first time or you missed a lot of the series or are unfamiliar with Esther, uh, the protagonists are Esther and Mordecai. They are in positions of prominence in the Persian Empire. This is after the Babylonian exile, a bunch of Jews were taken into Babylon. The Persians took over the Babylonians. These are ones that stayed when the Jews were allowed to return back home to Jerusalem. And what we find in these two characters, in these two people, is that they, uh, they had assimilated into the culture. They still had their Jewish identity but it was a cultural thing, it wasn't a religious thing, it wasn't a faith thing in their lives. They were pretty good Persians. They'd pretty much bought into the values of the Persian Empire. And in that way, uh, Esther is able to reach a goal that Mordecai helps her reach, which is to become the queen of the land, which sounds powerful, but it's not. (laughs) Not in that culture and not with that king. Uh, And while she's queen, she's able to save the Jews, people of Israel throughout the empire, from genocide. Uh, a man named Haman had cooked up a plan and was about to execute it where the Persian people could turn on their Jew, Jewish neighbors, kill them, and take the plunder. All right, so that has been foiled. God is never mentioned in the book, but it is very clear that the invisible hand of God's providence is working behind the scenes for everything that happens in the book. So we pick up uh, after all of that has happened and the book is coming to a conclusion. It's not the final conclusion, but it's one of the things that the book is driving to, okay, the book of Esther is driving to. So beginning in verse 20 of chapter 9, it says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes far, near and far. So he, has re- he, he was already a court official. Now he is like one of the top guys. To have them celebrate annually, uh, the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So, the Jews agreed to continue the celebration. They had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman is the bad guy, son of Hamadatha, uh, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. And when the plot came to the king's attention, he he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days are called Purim, from the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. All right, so we're going to look at three keys to developing a resilient faith. The first two are not so much going to come from this story, or this passage, but from earlier in the story, and especially in light of the larger story of God. And then the last one will drive home on this establishment of Purim. So the first key is spiritual awakening. You want to have a resilient faith. At some point, you have to have a spiritual awakening, sometimes a spiritual reawakening. And earlier in the story, we saw Mordecai, his spiritual awakening. And then, and it's under pressure. And then we see Esther's spiritual awakening in the moment that she says, when she's going to go into the king and she knows that's a dangerous thing to do, when she says, if I perish, I perish. At that point, she knows that dying would be better than living without having done what she can to save her people. She has a spiritual awakening there. So before the spiritual awakening, they're just cultural Jews. They are just like their pagan neighbors, but at that point, they come home to faith in God, there's all kinds of clues in the story that this is not just about saving their skin but that this is something where they are all of a sudden dependent on God and coming back to God. Um, they are like the prodigal, uh, the prodigal son, the younger son who goes off and finds himself in a pigsty and goes, it'd be better to be a servant for my dad than to stay where I am. And that's where, what, what happens in their, in their case. Now we noted that Esther is not someone, especially in the early chapters, of whom you would say like Daniel, dare to be a Daniel. You wouldn't say dare to be an Esther. Uh, Esther is not like Joseph who is sold into slavery by his brothers and is taken off into Egypt and he has no support for his faith but he stays true to God. Esther is not that kind of person. So Daniel is an interesting case to put up against Esther. Because Daniel is an example of a resilient faith over against someone who, maybe even generations earlier, a family and individuals who had left their faith behind. So the Babylonians uh, had defeated uh, the kingdom of Judah, the southern part of Israel. And so they had, had defeated them. And in their typical fashion, after destroying the infrastructure of the city, they left most of the people there, but they took into exile... Uh, the most educated and the people with the most experience in leadership and the people with the greatest, what they deemed was the greatest potential. So when they took them, they didn't imprison them. They didn't take them into exile and say, okay, now you're going to serve as slaves. No, they trained them. They wined and dined them. They, uh, it, Babylon was known as like the cutting edge of technology, the cutting edge of culture, the cutting edge of the arts, all that sort of architecture, all that kind of stuff. And what they did was try to assimilate them into Babylonian culture, so that they could serve the Babylonian kingdom. That was their um, that was their modus operandi, whatever. Um, anyways, use big words, get in trouble. Um, so they didn't. So it's a wonder that any of those of the educated that were brought in that any of them were able to keep their faith. Daniel and his three friends, who are the heroes of the story of the book of Daniel, uh, they keep their faith. They even grow in effectiveness as leaders and in leadership by working for the government and doing their work really well, also being blessed by God in all kinds of ways. God helps move them along for His purposes. And so they exemplify what Jeremiah told the exiles. As their exiles were leaving, Jeremiah wrote them a letter, the prophet Jeremiah, and he said, when you go there, build homes, have children, and work for the good of the city. Be good citizens in Babylon. You know, work for the good of the city. And they exemplify that, but eventually, because of their faith and because they're in high positions and because of people who plot against them, they face death. Fiery furnace, thrown to the lions, uh, most of you know some of those stories. So what's most remarkable about it is not only that Daniel and his three friends have a faith that withstands the overt assimilation techniques of the Babylonians that they had perfected, but that they were teenagers when they were taken into captivity and they preserved their faith. It's an amazing thing. It's not like they had years and years of living for God, of building up... uh, experiences with God. They are teenagers at the time. So think of Kinneman dropping off his daughter at Berkeley. She can join campus groups where she's going to find mentors, fellow Christians, um, good, good friends that share her faith, uh, live on mission, trying to share their faith with other people as well and do it together as a team. She can have that. She can join a local church, uh, participate in what the church offers. These guys had none of that. These guys had, had no, no support except just the four of them uh, for a period of time. Um, so I recently heard somebody asking the question and then answering it in a fascinating way, asked the question, how is it that so many Christians in our culture are folding and walking away from their faith in droves And these four young men have a resilient faith that weathers Babylon and lack of support. Berkeley times a hundred, Berkeley times a thousand. And the answer that this pastor gave was, well, the answer has to do with spiritual awakening and revival. And it goes back to a king in Israel, a King Josiah, who becomes king at age eight. And in his teenage years, this is about eight years later, so he had about 16, he has some kind of spiritual awakening in his life because he decides to go against the flow of where the kingdom has been. Well, the guy before him was an evil king, Uh, child sacrifice all throughout the land under this king, encouraged by the king, idols in the temple, Uh, idols everywhere, uh, all around the kingdom. This king for 55 years. And Josiah becomes king and at age 16 decides to clean things up. And the first thing that he does is we're going to clean up the temple. We're going to get rid of all the stuff. We're going to rebuild things because they've been tearing off basically all the gold and silver. has gone from the temple. Everything has been given away to other kings to appease them and all that sort of thing. And he decides we're, gonna, we're, we're going to bring the glory back to the temple. And while the, the priests are in there working on the temple, one of them discovers... The Torah, the Bible of the Jews, the first five books of our Bible. Somebody rediscovers the Torah. In other words, it's been so long that they hadn't even known that there was this thing called the Torah that gave them the whole story of the covenant of Abraham and Joseph and all these people and the laws that the Israelites are supposed to be living. It gets rediscovered, and it gets read to the king, and he tears his clothes because he said, we're not living anything like this. And he begins a revival in the land that really takes hold in the people of the land. And so in 2 Kings, it says this, this Josiah did to fulfill the requirement of the law. This is kind of at the end of his story, to fulfill the law written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all, of, all the law of Moses. And so we're told that God spares Judah from his promised uh, attack from the north. Attack is going to come, and you're going to be defeated, and he spares them, but only for the reign of Josiah. And if Josiah leaves, shortly after Josiah dies, the exile happens. Babylonians come, destroy them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... And Daniel, what did they grow up in? They grew up in the afterglow and under the leadership. They, their parents had been impacted by this revival. And they were living in that revival that was happening that took years and years throughout the land as idols were destroyed and false priests were eliminated and everything that was, that was happening. That's where you find that's the biggest clue regarding Daniel and his three friends and how they had a resilient faith. Daniel and his friends are products of Josiah's revival and everything that grew out of that revival. So in Kinneman's new book, which does this extensive research, what he did was the first one, the last one before this, was all about dropouts. This one was interviewing thousands, um, maybe 1,200 young adults uh, who had stuck to their faith, who had a resilient faith to find out what's different about these young adults versus the ones who walk away from their faith. And uh, their research brought it down to five different things that make the difference. And the first one is remarkably similar. To what happened to Daniel and his friends. It has to do with a genuine closeness with Jesus. That was one of the things that was common in those who had a resilient faith. They had a close relationship. They spoke of their faith, not in terms of something that they do or someplace they go. They spoke of it in terms of their relationship with Jesus, an intimate relationship, and a closeness. Faith, before they got you know, launched, faith was real to them. It was personal. It wasn't their parents. It gave them a sense of identity of who they were and what their purpose in life is. And they describe it in all sorts of ways. One of the ways they describe it is of clearing the clutter of of cultural Christianity. It's like getting behind, you know, past the Christian t-shirts, Christian music, anything like that that might be, and getting past that to develop a closeness with and joy in Christ and having a relationship with Jesus that brings deep joy and satisfaction. Worshiping is a lifestyle, not as an event that you go to. So what's the first key? The first key is a personal spiritual awakening. If we're going to have a resilient faith. We have to have a personal spiritual awakening that comes from connecting relationally with the living God through Christ. Never resilient faith somewhere along the line, it's got to become yours you got to own it. You, 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 it. It needs to move down into your heart. And understand this, parents. If it doesn't move into your heart, remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, about passing on your faith? It starts with, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Then pass it on to your kids. If, if it's not real to you, if it's a cultural thing to you, if it's just a thing that you do, if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you're not encouraging that. You're not bringing that. To your kids doesn't mean that they're not going to have it, uh, but you're making it very, very difficult for them to, to have that. It needs to be cultivated and encouraged. So spiritual awakening is the first key to having a resilient faith. The second key is a fo- is foundational training. Find foundational training training in the foundations of Christianity. So I could have the next slide. A personal relationship here's what I mean. A personal relationship with Jesus has to be grounded in a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. Otherwise, it just becomes, Jesus just becomes a, a projection of what we want him to be. Not, not who he actually is. What we want him to be, what we think he is, it needs a biblical ground. Our ideas of who we want Jesus to be, our ideas of what we think he should be, will not be sufficient for resilient faith got to know the real thing got to know the real person we all live under immense pressure to assimilate it's just in the air you don't think about breathing do you as you go throughout the day or you you don't think about what you're breathing in either in terms of the culture and so the most committed faithful person is going to find themselves as we've been saying throughout the series having to find our way back to God over and over again, that life has to be a life of, the whole Christian life is a life of repentance and faith, repenting and faith, repenting and faith. If we don't know the story of God of the Bible, if we don't know, know what our core beliefs are, if we don't know what the primary practices and disciplines of our faith are, and we're not practicing them, and we're not trained in them, and much like, you know, you're trained in sports, you're trained in music, you're trained in math, if we're not doing that, how can we keep but being almost completely assimilated into our culture? If you're not growing in a knowledge of God, if you don't know the Bible, this is not a shaming thing. If you don't know it, we need to, you need, we need to start learning and practicing and bringing the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life into our lives. Because there is no chance. If you, you, can, if you don't know what the real thing is, You easily, so easily buy into the fake thing, to all the things that are out there that sometimes have a veneer of spirituality but have no substance and no connection to your faith. David Kidman recalls a conversation he had over dinner with a good good friend that was a pastor, and he shared with him the five things, five practices that mark off a resilient faith in young adults. And he was surprised, he said, because the pastor said, we've just changed our worship service, and I think we're nailing all five. Kinneman's like, it's, you, you, if you look at what the five are, you can't, and they're in your outline, you can't do most of them in a worship service. About 95% of the growth that you'll experience in your life isn't going to happen in here. This can be a catalyst to growth, to responding to God, but it's not until we get out into our everyday life and it's, it's, it's an everyday, every hour, every minute type thing in our lives that we really grow spiritually when we face the challenges as well as when we keep putting God in our lives and we keep looking at His Word and we keep praying and we keep a connection and a dependency on Him. All those things are the things that grow us, not a decision that we make here or a great sermon or a wonderful worship service where we, those are catalysts. Those are equipping to go out for for spiritual growth. So he's a little bit kind of like, I don't think this guy gets it. And then he says to parents, he says, if you think taking your kids to church once a week, twice a week is going to do it, it's not going to do it. It takes so much more than that. The biblical foundations of faith are absent in Mordecai and Esther um, before their awakening But when they awaken, what you see is they've got vestiges of their faith still around. And so when Esther, for example, says, tell the Jews of Susa to fast for me uh, for three days, she's going back into her religious history that she's pretty much walked away from. And she's going back, and like we talked about a couple weeks ago, it doesn't make any sense to ask for that unless you believe there is God who is going to see that. And there's a connection between fasting and the results of what's going to happen and that prayer is going to be involved in that. Uh, we live in a culture today, if you saw the latest Pew Research that came out, uh, they, they come out with this every few years. <clears throat> more and more of our culture is de-churched. More and more of people in our culture have no church background whatsoever. They have nothing to go back to. It speaks a lot to what our mission is. When, when a new person comes to faith, in our culture, sometimes, and, it might, and some of you, this was the case for you, uh, you need some serious foundational training, uh, or you're not going to make it. Because you, ha- you don't even have, like, oh, I remember in Sunday school, and you start bringing some of the stuff that you grew up with, and you start practicing some of those things. You don't have that. And you need foundational training. We all need foundational training because we forget so quickly. Our job is not to Christianize our culture that is becoming increasingly, that's the Pew study that keeps coming out, it keeps saying, whoa, the accelerate, it's accelerating. There are, there are forces that might bring it back because um, Christians that believe in the Bible tend to have a lot more kids than secular people do. So that's one of the things that could bring it back. Um, and uh, you've got immigrants that move to this country that are a lot more... Uh, their faith is more important to them than secular so it, it can change very quickly in like one generation uh, of american culture assimilating them uh, but there there could be some forces that bring some of that back but our job is not to christianize the culture our job is to make disciples and give them the foundations and support each other and equip each other so that we grow in our faith the last one the last key is rhythms of grace we talk a lot about that here we in our foundational spiritual class the story of god where we give an overview of the whole bible story uh, we also talk about foundational disciplines we put them under categories connect deepen impact under those three those categories we talk about spiritual disciplines that belong to each one of those that help us to do by training the things that we cannot do by trying just by trying harder And they bring God's grace, they open us up to God's grace and change in our lives. Things like prayer, things like community, face-to-face type of community, things like corporate worship, uh, teaching in the Word, those kinds of things. So the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're given, in both Testaments, they're given personal and community practices that form our faith and need to become part of the rhythms of our life. That's why we're talking about here rhythms of grace. Spiritual disciplines are graces that God gives us, not things to do so that we can make God happy. They are from God's grace so that we can connect with Him. Two of those practices are highlighted in Esther. The first one is fasting. The second one is feasting. So we talked about fasting a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to come back to fasting in the winter when we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But today, the passage highlights feasting. That is a spiritual discipline, feasting. And so the Bible actually highlights and emphasizes feasting more than fasting. You look back to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, uh, for the people of Israel, the law is given there. There is one prescribed fast that happens once a year. There are multiple feasts that happen throughout the year. And so... um, The book of Esther, one of the purposes, as you can pretty clearly see, one of the purposes of getting this book down is not only all the story, but to explain why the Jews uh, celebrate Purim. It's a feast that today, 2,500 years later, the Jews still celebrate. They still celebrate Purim. So here's some lessons, three lessons, from the institution and practice of Purim and other festivals. Okay, so as we look at feasting and festivals, what should we learn for our own lives? Here are three things, three among many. Feasting for God should be fun. (laughs) The word feasting is almost synonymous with fun. It's supposed to be fun. And uh, you may have noticed in the reading of uh, the passage in verse 22 where it says, he wrote them, Mordecai wrote them, to observe the days at days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. What does that sound like? Christmas. It does. It sounds a lot like Christmas. Now, if you think it would be more spiritual at Christmas time not to exchange gifts, you may have a wrong idea about what spiritual means. It's right there, they exchange and you go, well, it's just food not just food in that culture. They had a lot more of their own hands involved in the food, okay? So there's, this is giving of gifts, and it's giving of gifts to one another and gifts to the poor. It sounds a lot like what happens around here uh, at that time of year. Um, can gift giving, gift giving become so dominant that it pushes down the spiritual aspects of Christmas? Yes, absolutely. And that may mean fasting from gifts. You know, if you decide one year to fast from gifts, that that makes sense. I understand that. But if you, like, eliminate the giving of gifts and you turn Christmas, especially if you have young kids, into something that is somber and bleh, you're not not doing God's work uh, in doing that. You're not doing what what God has set out to do. The Jews added um, elements over time to Purim. And one of the major elements was that. When they would gather, they, today they still do this, everybody gets noisemakers. They read the whole story of Esther. And every time Haman comes up, and you can imagine, especially the younger kids, waiting for the moment that Haman is first mentioned. Uh, just kind of waiting and waiting. Because when it happens, everybody starts making noise, booing and hissing. Imagine some little Jewish kid looking up at his mom or his dad. And they're going, boo, oh, hiss, yes, making noise with these noisemakers. Just, just imagine that. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. It's, it's a feast of joy and of giving presents to one another. Why, why give the presents? It's to bring joy to the, to the holy cage. The joy of giving, because it's better to give than to receive, and the joy of receiving as well. Um, so feasting should be fun. Secondly, feasting for God should be a call to reawakening. Feasting should be a call to reawaken. Purim became a way of calling um, calling people like Esther and Mordecai and the rest of us, the reader, all of us, back to God, to seeing the glory of God in the way that He is true to His promises and to His covenant for His people. A feast is a return, it's a call to return to a God who throws parties for His people. That's a God who throws parties for His people. A God who puts way more feasts and parties into the year regularly for the people than put fasts, which are times of great learning and of, of depth, uh, but a God who throws parties for His people. I've f- pointed out many, many times here that one of the festivals, one of the feasts for the people of Israel, they would come with their tithes. It was a ba- major one. You'd come with the first fruit of your of your uh, harvest. And so, they would gather. And it's in Deuteronomy, so it's, it's saying someday you will be given a place to gather. It's going to be Jerusalem. And when you do, bring your food. And first thing you need to do, get yourself settled. Go out and buy some beer and strong drink. And then take part of the tithe that you brought, what you're giving to me. I gave you everything. I asked for a portion back so that you learned to depend on me for everything. And then I'm going to give you a little bit more back. I want you to eat part of your tithe. Does this sound like a party? Does that like add to what God wants from people? What do we learn in the New Testament? He wants cheerful givers. So that that festival should be fun. They should call for reawakening of of recognizing God and, and that this is a God who throws parties for people. And then finally, feasting for God should be about spiritual formation. So I want to read you a couple of sections. One I have in your outlines, and I'll have on the screen the first part. No, but this is from Mike Cosper's book that we've referred to. By the way, our teaching team was at a conference Mike Cosper organized this uh, last week, and I went up to him and I said, "Hey, we we just finished. We're finishing an eight-week series on Esther." I think I've mentioned you every week. I think your, your sales of your book are going to go up. <laughs> it goes good because nobody else has bought it. <laughs> so this is what he says. He says, if we ignore Purim, then Esther's story is about life's big critical moments and the spirituality of the book could be misperceived. In other words, if you take Purim out, and uh, people of our kind of make up, of our Christian tradition, don't really like, you know, kind of like being told that you have to have a ritual that you do every year. And so we, we have a tendency to kind of, resist. but if you do that, then the book becomes about being Esther, you know, when she finally says, if I must, you know, if I perish, I perish. It becomes about big decisions in life. And it becomes a, about a revivalistic call to spiritual awakening, have an awakening like Esther and Mordecai. And he says, there's nothing wrong with that per se. Of course there is. But we need to keep Purim in the mix in order to have a fuller picture of where the spirituality of Esther's story is leading to. So to understand, what is Esther trying, what is this book trying to get into our lives? You can't just look at the big decisions. You have to look at Purim. And then he says this. He writes this. The book doesn't end with victory in battle. It ends with the inauguration of Purim, a new tradition meant to preserve the story for the generations to come. It's a reminder that identifying as one of God's people isn't just about a decision. It's about a way of life. Okay, we've, we've said this before. Christianity is not about making a decision to follow Christ. It's about becoming disciples of Christ. All right, a decision without discipleship is not a real decision, and so um, it's a rhythm built into the calendar to remind us that our identity is easily forgotten, that the enemy is prowling and hungry, and that no matter what, God preserves His people. You know, we're about to go, we're going into Thanksgiving, and then we're going into one of the most important Christian feasts. That we have we're about to go into advent four weeks of advent we'll have an advent series that we're calling we have a, a four-week series before that but we'll have an advent series called "O holy night and we're going to look at the narratives the you know the sadness the harshness the difficulties as well as the joys of what advent is all about um, is christmas going to be the same for you this year as it always has been when you found yourself looking back and going, what was it really about for me? And you're disappointed. Are you gonna celebrate Advent this year? I mean, really celebrate Advent. Uh, We'll help you in doing that, but you can find some ways as well to do that in your own homes. And you should find some ways as well to do that in your own homes. Um, That's one little application, but the rhythms need to come into our lives so that it becomes something that becomes a part of our daily lives because our faith is about daily life bringing christ into everything that's what builds a resilient faith let's pray father we are so thankful that you are a god who throws parties for prodigals we are um, prodigals we walk away from you in so many different ways. We may, our hearts may still be with you, but we find so many ways of, of trying to be in two places, in our world, in ways that we shouldn't be, and with you. And, and so we thank you, Father, that you keep inviting us back to, to walk with you and to enjoy you and to um, enjoy your presence in our everyday lives. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are encouraging each other uh, in the faith so that we would be a people of a resilient faith. I pray for our our young people in our church, our high schoolers, middle schoolers, college students that have uh, semi-launched and are far away from home. I pray that you would become real in their lives. And I pray that we would do our part in helping that happen. And I pray this in Jesus' name.